This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kara Dillard, Interim Associate Director at the Madison Center for Civic Engagement and Assistant Professor in the School of Communication Studies. And I'm your co-host, Dr. David Kirkpatrick, Interim Executive Director here at the Madison Center and an Associate Professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religion. The goal of Democracy Matters is to speak with academics, leaders, students, practitioners about the importance of democracy in our world and to educate and inspire people to address public issues to advance the common good. And joining us today is Dr. Laura Edwards, a legal historian and professor at Princeton University, whose research focuses on the 19th century United States. She's the author of four books and received numerous awards, including the Southern Historical Association's Charles Sidner Prize for Best Book in Southern History, the AHA's Lilton Griswold Prize for the Best Book in American Law and Society, as well as fellowships from the Guggenheim, American Council of Learned Societies, NEH, uh, National Humanities Center, among many, many others. Uh, Her latest project, which we'll talk about here, Only the Clothes on Her Back, Textiles, Law, and Commerce in the 19th Century United States, tells the story of legal history in commerce by examining how people used textiles in the 1800s and the legal principles that shaped and framed their social and political uses. And you'll see just how relevant that is to our themes here later on in our our conversation. Dr. Edwards will also be our keynote speaker here at the Madison Center's Constitution Day lecture on September 22nd at James Madison University, where she'll give a talk titled, The Constitution and the Reconstruction of Rights After the Civil War. We're excited to have you on Democracy Matters, Dr. Edwards, to have you on campus next week as well. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I thought we'd start off by asking you to tell our listeners here at Democracy Matters about your research, about the classes you teach at Princeton, and how you came to this research. Yeah, you know, um, actually, it's an interesting question because I came to be a legal historian by kind of a roundabout route. I didn't start out that way. I started out doing social and political history. I was very interested in the way that ordinary people interacted with uh, political institutions, with the law. And so I was very much focused there. Um, And then it became clear that a lot of the sources were legal sources. Those sources actually had the most information about ordinary people who are not the famous folks, who are not the people that folks usually write about as political leaders and whatnot. So I started using a lot of legal sources to get at, you know, workers, to get at African-Americans in the South, where a lot of my research has been focused in in the Reconstruction era and the Civil War era, um, and also on women, um, women throughout the 19th century, white and black, um, and poor women in particular. And I was giving a paper one time, and there were two legal historians there, uh, two very eminent legal historians. And one of them said, you know, if you're going to use those sources, you should really know more about the law. And there was this big, long pause on my part. It's like, oh, okay. Well, I don't know how to do that. So um, I, like, you know, pulled up my shoes and laced them up, and I went to the law library. And I thought, I'm going to find out about the law. And it was very intimidating. It was very quiet. Actually, this is a Northwestern Law Library. It was the point. It was 
carpeted and you kind of walked in and there was this silence to the point that you can kind of hear the heating and ventilation system. And then you go over to these walls of books and they're leather bound and they have the little, you know, gold stripes and the inlay. Anyway, so I pull down, you know, statutes and I pull down appellate decisions and I start reading. Except that none of those really applied particularly well to the sources that I was looking at, which were a lot of local cases. And um, in fact, there was this kind of disjuncture between law at that point, at the point that I was looking at was state level statutes, appellate decisions, federal statutes, appellate decisions, and what was going on in local courts where people are bringing their everyday conflicts, their problems, and they're expecting resolutions of some kind. So in there, in that disjuncture, that became kind of the point where I do legal history. I try to figure out the interaction between these various levels of the legal system. So the more I started doing that, the more I started actually thinking about legal institutions, how all of these things fit together, how these different levels of law fit together, how that changes over time. So slowly but surely, I kind of got drawn into this and became a legal historian to the point now where I am no longer intimidated to walk into the law library. So much. Dr. Edwards, civic engagement cuts across a number of fields, including political science, history, and even student affairs. What do historians like yourself have to contribute to civic engagement right now? So the first and foremost thing that I think historians do, which I think gets back to your first question, the piece I didn't answer, is we teach classes. So I teach legal history. Um, And when I teach legal history, I'm teaching, you know, basic I'm teaching the law, but I'm teaching basic civics about how the institutions of law developed in our country, how people have access to them, how that changes over time, what we expect the law to do, how that changes over time, and like where legal authority is located and how that changes over time. So for me, when I get, you know, 60 people in a lecture class, that's it's civic engagement. I mean, I'm talking to these people who are going to go on and be lawyers, who are going to go on and do policy oftentimes of some sort, or even if they don't do any of that, they're going to go off and like, you know, be teachers or whatever they do. They need to know the system and the political system, the legal system that frames all of our lives. So to me, that's really, really crucial, right? Um, And I teach a range of classes here, um, legal history. And before this, I taught at Duke, but I teach women in law. And I also teach graduate courses in legal history. And I've also taught classes in American democracy, which deals more with kind of the, the institutions, political institutions in our country. So that's first and foremost. But then second, I feel like historians also, especially this particular moment, can offer insight and perspective, right? Their historians don't usually see a direct line between past and present. We tend to see things as it's more twisty road, but the past is usually not what you think it is. Um, and so if you know about that strange place, the past, it can really help you see the present differently. And I notice this in my legal history classes. So we start out where we're starting at right now in the 1600s and the students are like, why are we reading this really hard material? Because it's primary sources from the 1600s. They don't use a lot of commas. They don't have paragraphs and they spell things in a funny way. And it's really difficult reading. And they also don't understand these strange people in the past. And they're like, I don't understand what this has to do with me. 
And I was like, wait, just wait. This is cumulative. So by the time you get to the end of the semester, you're going to see yourself differently because you've engaged with these very strange people in the past and they're different from you. But that's the point. And that gives you perspective because now we assume that the things around us, it's, we don't, we take it for granted. It's like what it's always been. And if you know that actually the things that we think are now natural are fairly recent creations, oh my gosh, that gives you perspective on what can change. Um, and it opens up questions that we often don't ask. It's like, should we be doing this? Is this the best way? Maybe we could do this a different way. So I think history opens up alternatives that we wouldn't see unless we had that perspective. Well, I want to continue on that that topic. And uh, I think you and I could probably stay on that topic all day of historians being relevant to, to our present. Um, so talking about historians' views of civic engagement, I'm sure you've uh, been aware of or certainly heard about the recent article that the president of the American Historical Association, James Sweet, wrote where he warned against presentism and always interpreting the past through the contemporary lens or always seeking to apply it to the present, especially with what he called identity politics. And of course, he apologized and there's a lot of uh, kind of brouhaha about it. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that controversy, but more importantly, what you think about histori the historian's role in addressing present issues. Right. Um, as I said, I think the past is always relevant to the present, but you kind of have to look at the past on its own terms, right? I mean, the past is a complicated place full of really complicated people who are flawed human beings, just as we were flawed today. And for me to be a historian, I take this as a craft that is important about preserving the past, about finding the past, about recovering the past. And my first, and as I see as a historian, my first commitment is to them. Um, and I hope that somebody takes that time with us today, right? And goes beyond the headlines and goes beyond sort of simple kinds of generalizations and gets into who we are and has appreciation for us as many-sided individuals. And I think to be fair to people's humanity, you have to be able to see all aspects of a person. Um, we have many sides to us, right? And to be respectful to people now, to be respectful to people in the past is to try to elucidate that humanity, right? And to situate that and to make sense of their worlds and their lives. And to do that, I mean, ultimately, if you do that, as I was suggesting before, it gives you perspective that does connect to the present. But oftentimes it's not an easy connection. Um, people in the past are surprising. Um, they're not all good and they're not all bad. Um, sometimes they're surprising in awful ways, and sometimes they're surprising in amazing ways. And let me just give you an example of this. So, um, again, getting back to my legal history class that I'm teaching right now, um, in the 1600s, 1700s, there are a series of cases that I assign where women are very active, actually, as legal actors in the legal system at a point where, in fact, they're extraordinarily subordinate at the same time. But it's the fact of their subordination, oftentimes, it gives them a connection to the larger social order that they then use to make legal claims. And one of the claims they make is often um, against excessive violence by the men who are in charge of their lives, usually their husbands. Um, enslaved women have a much more difficult 
time doing this against the men who are enslaving them. But, you know, women, married women actually file domestic violence cases with some frequency and are successful. And the students are really surprised because it's like, well, domestic violence isn't illegal at this point and there's inequality and they're subordinate. And it's like, yeah, but there are also ways in this world that women can make claims about excessive violence as a public issue. So the public issue, it's not a violation of their rights, but it is a violation of what people see as the public order. And a public order should be such that people don't abuse their authority to the point where they're engaging in unwarranted violence against somebody. And if you think about it, it's like, wow, that's actually in some ways a much more expansive notion of, you know, a norm against violence than we might have today, where you actually have to see it as a rights claim against an individual, which can be very difficult for women to bring. And it's actually easier for women to do this in the 1700s and 1800s. And it does give you pause. It's like, I wasn't expecting that. And what that opens up is different ways to understand how people connected to law, the legal system, and how we might also understand the regulation of violence or other issues in our community today. But if you would think that you would find that in the 1700s, in the 1600s, you know, in colonial North America, that's not what you're expecting. So you kind of have to be open sometimes to the ways that the past can inform the present. And it's not always this direct line. But to do that, you also have to get beyond the women are subordinate and therefore they're oppressed. You have to think, oh, women are subordinate. But this is a different world. So what does that mean there that's different from today? And this is where I think presentism can get in the way of understanding what's going on in the past and understanding those people. And you really have to, you know, you have to invest in that and you kind of have to immerse yourself in their worlds to be able to see that. Um, and so the line is never completely straight. And this is where presentism plays in, right? Presentism is, I have this problem now, so it must be the same problem in the past. And then there's a direct line from here to there. And Jim Sweet was talking about that when he was talking about, you know, like recent Supreme Court decisions where they're looking for an exact parallel in the past. You may not find an exact parallel in the past. And those are easy uses of the past. And in some ways to understand the past, you also have to assume that just because folks in the past may seem like you, they may not be like you at all. And I think that's where Jim was going and maybe he did not express that in the most graceful way possible, shall we say. Thanks for those thoughts. I think this is why we need historians' voices in these conversations, particularly because of that lack of a straight line and the need to live in tension. I mean, for, for the students who are listening as well, I think this is why there's really no substitute for primary sources. And in my classes, why there's no substitute for even connecting students to the archives, giving them that ability to, to live in the tent. I mean, just, I just taught a class on the civil rights movement and bringing them in past the narratives of everybody loved Martin Luther King Jr., of course, on, you know, among so-called white moderates, but also in the African-American community, introducing them to uh, leaders in Chicago who fiercely pushed back on King's work, uh, you know, especially late in his life. Uh, so letting them see that there is not this, that the past is much more complex and introducing right. them to those tensions that I think can help them then address oh, yeah. these public issues. Well, I'm oh, I was going to say too that one of the most interesting things about history is though, be, if you realize that this is a different place, because, you know, time is, it's different, right? These people are different. The logic of the world is different. Their goals are different. And they actually don't know about you either. So it's not like they're doing anything there 
with us in mind, in fact. But if you go to the past and you start thinking of it in that way, it's going to have the most fascinating conversations because it's not invested in the issues like you today. So, you know, actually, I've had incredibly fascinating conversations about questions of race and inequality when we're talking about the 1600s and the 1700s, right? Because it is so far distant that you can raise really difficult, interesting questions without the personal kind of investment that people have. So I think it's also a place where you can try out ideas, where you can think through things. Um, and then you can also try to understand them. And it's because you are understanding them and not us now that makes it possible to have those conversations too. Well, speaking on introducing new ideas and uh, you, you know having the archive as a place to really explore those possibilities, I'm excited to introduce our listeners to your new book, Only the Clothes on Her Back, published by Oxford University Press this year. Shout out to Oxford University Press. I'm working with them uh, as well for my book. Um, so the argument in your research project, uh, especially the argument, is incredibly innovative. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us about how you came to that idea, the, the kind of foundation of your idea. I think it's particularly relevant for, of course, scholars, for historians, for those interested in civic engagement, but also for students where something like textiles can surprise and can lead to kind of broader conclusions. Maybe you can speak to how, how you thought about textiles as a window into a broader conversation about rights uh, in that whole conversation. Yeah, I mean, textiles is, I, at first I was telling people when I started this project, I'm like, I'm doing a legal history of textiles, and they would look at me like I was nuts. Um, this is not something that, you know, people usually think about, right? But this all started with a whole series of cases that I had that I was working on another book. And one case in particular involved a man and he had the, all the case documents were that like, I think his name was John Marshall, although he was clearly not the U S Supreme court justice because he was behind a plow in North Carolina in the 1830s. And he had his dress stolen from him. And I'm like, okay, John Marshall out here with his plow, it is dress stolen from him. Either he's way more interesting than what I thought, and that the 1830s in North Carolina was way more interesting, or there's something else going on here. And in fact, it's not his dress, it's his wife's dress. And so once you get past the introductory sort of, you know, form on a, this local legal case, you, you open up the documents, and all of it deals with his wife's dress, and it's clearly her dress, and it is returned to her. And I was kind of fascinated by this. And then I ran across some other cases where, you know, an enslaved woman was accused of stealing cloth, but she, in fact, had had the cloth for quite a while and had been walking around with it. Nobody said anything about it until similar kinds of cloth were discovered stolen from the store. And then she came under suspicion. And I'm like, so, wait a minute, she isn't supposed to have she's an enslaved person. She can't own property, but somehow she could own cloth. And it was only when, you know, another doubt was raised that people started questioning her ownership of it. Ultimately, I think she gets to keep this. So I was kind of stunned by this and I didn't have the time then because that was not what the book was about to, or that book to explore this. But I thought, you know, textiles are actually different. And I kept running across evidence that people without rights, without the ability to own property in the way that we usually assume you can own property by having a property right to it, that they made legal claims to clothing, but other forms of textiles all the time that were upheld in local courts and that were recognized more broadly, even outside sort of local areas. So merchants regularly sold textiles to enslaved people. They sold them to married women 
women, they sold them to children, and they didn't ask for the permission of husbands or the people who claimed to be masters, the enslavers. They just did with the presumption that you could own your own clothes. So I sat down and thought about that for a while. And I started reading a little bit more broadly. And, it, and in fact, there is this presumption that the clothes that you're wearing belong to you. And you could totally see why that would be the case, right? Uh, um, it's like, no, it, it's, it's you. But it's also, it, it's like when you loan somebody a handkerchief too, it's like, you know, they blow their nose in it. It's like, no, you keep that, right? Um, you know, it's, 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 there's this really strong cultural connection between the clothes that people wear and them. And this goes way back. It goes across cultures um, and it's well established. But then in the United States, colonial North America and the United States, people use that general principle that attach people to clothes to say, well, anything that has anything to do with clothing like material is mine. So there are married women who are producing thousands of yards of cloth and they maintain control over that because it's textiles and it could be turned into clothing. And we're talking hats and shoes and, you know, this whole range bed linens, which are sometimes the most expensive, most valuable items in an estate. Um, so all these people are making credible claims to all of this kind of property, which is really, really valuable. And this struck me as just kind of novel in a number of ways, right? Because people are making legal claims to property, but it doesn't change their legal status. And they're not doing this through a recognition of rights, but they're doing this through legal principles that attach to the material goods themselves. So essentially, like if you come clothed in court with textiles, the textiles themselves give you a legal status that you would not have by yourself otherwise. And this is not the way we're used to thinking about law, right? It's also not the way we're used to thinking about people's relationship to material goods. Um, and then the legal system recognizes all of this and people exploit this to also then turn textiles into currency. They turn textiles into capital. They turn textiles into the basis of credit. And, you know, to give like a more modern example, one that may resonate with some people, but trunks, like my grandmother had a trunk, my mother had a trunk, and their trunks were filled with like linens. And this is very common from the 18th century, actually before then and into the 20th century. Trunks are a legal container that defines what's inside, if you can own it, as yours, if you live in somebody else's house. So, you know, people put textiles into trunks. And this is a little confusing because, you know, the things that you wear lie alongside things that people are saving as capital in their trunks, right? Um, so it's, it's, Historians have assumed that all of those items that people had, they have like scratched their head and wonder, why do all these people go out and buy, you know, dress fabric and hats and shoes? And this is the common complaint about women, about people of color and poor people in the 19th century is, oh, you just give them some money and they go off and spend it on frippery, like clothing. And in fact, it's not frippery. It's a way of investing your money in something that you can legally claim, right? So this makes perfect sense. And so this is opening up a whole sector of the economy that we haven't really explored, that we've kind of dismissed as, oh, those people just buy consumer goods. It's not really valuable. Um, and in fact, they're using textiles in the same way that other people are using other forms of exchange. Um, so yes, it was fascinating because once you start unraveling textiles, right, you start seeing law and the economy in a really, really different way. And you're positioning people without rights at the center of the economy and the legal system, where we've always sort of thought of them on the outside and marginalized. 
was just going to add, it's so interesting because this is what I'm, I want my students to be thinking about as well in their, their research projects is you can say something new if you are in these primary sources, if you're in the archives, that there is there are many arguments that can be made with things that already exist that people have studied. And I think that's a great example of, of pushing the boundaries of things that people certainly are aware of textiles and, uh, you know, uh, uh, there in that time period, but what do they mean and how do they help us understand something like rights? It's so interesting. In your book, you tell this fascinating story about orphanages and, and textiles. Can you, I, I would love to hear more about this and would love for you to share this story with our audience. Sure. So this story, I can't take complete credit for it. It actually comes from the work of John Stiles. And he's a British historian. He's talking about the London Foundling Hospital. And I should also point out that they still exist. And they're called Coram. And they still actually deal with, you know, um, there's still an orphanage and, and they still deal with, you know, um, the needs and welfare of children. Um, and they let me use some of their pictures for the book, which was very kind. But Okay, so this is London, and this they're taking in, you know, children that mothers can't take care of, essentially. And, you know, given the legal system at the time, a child without a father is an orphan because mothers are not parents in some areas of law. Um, of course, they are parents, right? But legally, they're not classified that way. And mothers have a very difficult time if they're on their own, you know, making enough money to take care of their children. So oftentimes you would have, you know, women who are servants, who are poor, who are who husbands have died, um, or who have gone off on a sailing voyage and don't come back, and they have children and they can no longer take care of them. And these mothers are very attached to their children. You don't want to give up your child, but they often are in a position where they have absolutely no choice. Now, the problem is, is that you're in an illiterate society. Not everybody can read and record keeping is somewhat difficult. And you're also talking about mothers who are bringing in babies, but then babies grow up. And some of these mothers hope to come back and reclaim their children. But it's not like if they come back three years later, they're going to recognize their child because their child will have changed incredibly. So the way they keep track of the connection between the mother and the child is through what they call tokens. And many of these tokens are clipped pieces of fabric from either the child's clothing or the mother's clothing or from some sort of clothing, you know, um, you know, blankets or whatnot. And there is one really heartbreaking example of this where there is like a piece of red wool that the mother's cut out as a heart and pinned it then to other fabric from her clothing and from the child's clothing. And so the textiles then have this legal resonance. And I feel like this is a really good example of the kind of legal principles that are attached to textiles that are not written down, but that people understand um, the attachment, the clothing from people then becomes the token that connects the mother to the child and becomes the way that the mother can come back and reclaim that child. And the care that mothers put into this is pretty phenomenal. Um, John Stiles, they did a, a, an exhibit there at one point of all of the tokens that mothers had given. And there is a, you know, a catalog from that exhibit. And it is amazing, right? Um, that this isn't just something like people did, oh, I guess we have to do this and they, you know, scrawl something out. No, they, they put a lot of care into this and these are beautiful things. And, you know, it could also be the last token that that child will have because the mother probably won't come back. Um, but there is that connection then to the mother through these textiles. But this you can see, if I can go on for just a little, for one more second, you can see this too, like the court cases from the early 19th century, where 
it's not uncommon that, you know, somebody will be walking down the street and they see somebody else and like their neighbor's coat. And that person will chase down the person with their neighbor's coat, chase them down, like tackle them, take the coat and then take the person into, you know, the, the court, actually what they call a watch, which is kind of a local public area where somebody with some connection to the court system would take control of the person and initiate legal proceedings. It's like, I would never do this. I would never do this partly because everybody buys their stuff at what the same store. And I mean, how do you, it's all the same stuff now, but People identify other people by their clothing. It's seen as a second skin. It expresses who you are and people recognize you by the clothing that you're wearing. So, you know, it's not just theft. It's like it's a violation of individual identity that somebody else is walking around with somebody's coat. Um, And there's also works in the reverse way where, you know, like women will, servants are, and enslaved people will often steal clothing that is of a better status than they are and then try to pass into that status, right? And this could really work. There are all sorts of tales of escaped enslaved people who were doing this and using this kind of strategy. But you have to be far enough away that nobody recognizes the clothing. (laughs) Because if somebody says, oh, but that's so-and-so's dress, then you're done for, right? So this is a world where, you know, people invest a lot in those textiles and they're like willing to go, uh, you know, like chase somebody down to get their neighbor's coat back. And all of that sort of speaks to why those tokens, at the founding hospital also work in the way they do. So interesting. Well, I encourage our readers to get a hold of the copy. The book is titled the only the clothes on her back published with Oxford. And it's a fascinating book, very well written. I encourage everyone to, to get a topic. Uh, uh, I was going to say topic because that's my next question, but a copy of, of the book. Let's turn to the topic now of your lecture and conversations we're going to have on campus next week here at James Madison University on September September 22nd, which is also my birthday. Oh, Great way to celebrate yeah. uh, my birthday with <laughs> Constitution Day uh, events. And so um, I'd love to ask you, Dr. Edwards, how your work more broadly intersects the Constitution. Right. I mean, it would seem like a stretch to go from, oh, you have legal claims to textiles that are recognized by courts to the U.S. Constitution, especially the way that we define the U.S. Constitution today. So, you know, the U.S. Constitution is the document of the U.S. Constitution. But and then actually, constitutional scholars think of this as the constitutional order, right? So the the U.S. Constitution is one document in a larger legal order, a constitutional order that also includes other elements of the legal system, right? So it is the fact that the U.S. Constitution does certain things that then actually delegates other powers to other parts of the system. um, And it's part of, it's a piece in a larger order. So we often think, oh, the U.S. Constitution, the, you know, constitutional issues, things that go before the Supreme Court, that's sort of the highest order of things. But that's not usually the way that people think about the or scholars think about the constitutional order. And this is definitely also the case of the 19th century, where there are sort of many moving parts to the constitutional order and state constitutions are as important as, federal, as the federal constitution. And state constitutions also delegate considerable authority to local area, right? So if you're thinking about how we're all connected together in this legal system, in the constitutional order of which we're all a part, you have to consider all the moving parts. And 
I would argue we haven't really considered all the moving parts in certain areas of the system. And those areas were really important in the 19th century of local courts. And by local courts, there's this array of local venues that now we don't really notice. Actually, many of them are still in operation, but there were magistrates. Magistrates were either elected or designated as sort of the first stage of the legal process. And these guys would take cases like they're eating dinner and somebody would come by and file, you know, a complaint and they're like, okay. And then they stop what they're doing and they bring in all the folks and they hear the case and their jurisdiction is defined by state law generally, but you know, it sort of expands and contracts, but a lot of the legal business, the daily legal business is done there. And they also have jurisdiction over a whole range of property matters, debt cases, in addition to minor criminal offenses, but then everything that is in this sort of broad area that is somehow against the public order, against the peace of the, you know, the state. So they have this very broad sort of ambiguous jurisdiction and are handling a lot of local business. And they're also sort of operating, and we would call it informal. Um, it's actually by very formalized processes, but they're not following the kind of stated legal procedure um, that is more professionalized that you would see in other areas of the system. So they take all kinds of information from people who might not be able to give actual testimony. Um, and their job is to produce justice, which is kind of different also than upholding individual rights. Um, so you see a lot of that happening in the 19th century. And, and that part is often overlooked today. In fact, that's the area of law where you would find, for instance, people who are filing domestic violence cases or who are making claims to textiles not in the basis of rights. And instead, a lot of the legal scholarship focuses on state courts and appellate courts at the state level in particular and federal appellate courts. Um, and that really gives you a much more skewed vision of what the law is and what people's interaction with the law is. Because, you know, your basic run-of-the-mill ordinary person out there in the 19th century would not ever have any kind of conflict or issue that would go into a federal court nor would they have necessarily any kind of issue that would ever land up in you know, a state appellate court. So if you look there, you see the law is much more top down, much more rarefied, much more professionalized, much more focused on lawyers and the elite. But if you open up these other pieces of our constitutional order, you see the ways that people are actively engaging in the law. They have definite ideas about what the law should look like, what it should do and how it should you know, operate. And they're very assertive and make Making those kinds of claims. And for me, that's incredibly important because this vision of a more top-down law that is inaccessible to people promotes the idea and a narrative that most people were outside the legal system, that they were marginalized, that they were excluded, but they also had no knowledge of the law. And it's only recently that they've been included and that you know they're gaining knowledge. And in fact, that doesn't hold water when you look at the evidence and expand out the constitutional order. All kinds of people without rights, who were marginalized, who were unequal, they were participating in the legal order and they had definite ideas about what that law should do. And so we have a much wider range of ideas there and a much wider scope of action, I think, than what we have imagined. If you just look at certain areas of the legal system, the ones that legal scholars must generally look at. So interesting. I mean, I think there's so many parallels to the present, for sure, about how we understand including people in, in the legal system and um, certainly the exercise of rights. 
Um, so the title of Dr. Edwards's lecture we mentioned coming up is the Constitution and the Reconstruction of Rights After the Civil War. I wonder if we could uh, hone in a little bit on why you think a period like Reconstruction is interesting to understand the Constitution or the constitutional order. And maybe you can explain to our audience first what Reconstruction uh, is or was. Sure, yeah. Um, so this talk comes out of work that I've done for a few books, and I've kind of put it together into this talk to, to speak to this broader transformation that's happening in the Reconstruction era. So during Reconstruction, after the Civil War, right, the Confederacy loses the Civil War, the federal government, the United States, comes in, and they're trying to bring the Confederate States back into the United States. And then there's this question about abolishing slavery, that that needs to be done for that to happen. But then the status of people who are formerly enslaved, and then all people of African descent in the country. So as part of that whole reconfiguration, um, we pass the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery, the 14th Amendment, which provides federal oversight over particular rights, and the 15th Amendment, which allows, expands the suffrage to African-American men, right? Now, in most things in law, you can pass laws, but enforcement is the key, right? Um, I think we can all, like, think of examples. I can think of examples in my departments where I've worked, where we pass a rule and then nobody enforces it. And so only the people who are really dedicated, oh my gosh, and dutiful, we do that. And the people that the rule was passed to actually, you know, like try to change their behavior, they, they ignore it completely. Without enforcement, laws don't go anywhere. So enforcement becomes key. And enforcement is actually happening not from the federal level, because Although somewhat, as recent scholarship has shown, actually the military is in places to try to kind of provide buttressing for uh, the enforcement of some of these laws. But um, it's actually happening usually in local areas. And often the onus is put on people of African descent themselves, that they're the ones, if they want to claim these new rights, they're the ones who are going to have to do it. But then they're always going to have to kind of like figure out how to make that happen within often hostile legal systems. Okay, so there's that, which I'm already having, asking you to think not about the passage of laws, but about after the passage of laws, right? The enforcement and the interpretation of them on the ground is where the action really is. So hold that in your head for one minute. And then there's a larger transformation here, which is the emphasis on individual rights. So in the 19th century, there is a very robust body of law dealing with individual rights, but they're not the rights we think of today. So we tend to think of like the Bill of Rights. We think of some of those, what we now call civil liberties that um, are enumerated in state constitutions, the right to assemble, freedom of the press. Civil rights in this period do not generally, well, they do not generally refer to those rights. There are exceptions here. Um, they're often referring, though, to property rights. So the ability to own property, to transfer property, to uh, sign contracts so that you can acquire property and make a wage, which you would turn into property, and then the rights necessary to defend those property rights in court. So it's a more narrow band of rights. And when you look at the initial statute, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which is kind of the precursor to the 14th Amendment, it enumerates just those rights. There's no mention of like freedom of religion, or freedom of speech, any of the things that many of us would go to today as those rights. So we have the federal government, all of those rights, those more limited civil rights were 
generally, it was left to the states to deal with those. And what the 14th Amendment does, actually the 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment, and 15th Amendment, is provide federal oversight. So this is the first time the federal government is going to be involved in like managing the distribution of those rights, who gets them, and how they're enforced within states. So we have that transformation here, which elevates rights in this period. And then that also speaks to another change. So we have two, I've got one more for you, which is in the earlier period, um, early 19th century, I was mentioning all these local courts and like magistrates who were not interested so much in upholding rights, so that was not their job. They might've been interested in it, but it wasn't their job, but they're dealing with offenses against the public order. So you have all kinds of things, you know, like somebody hits you, somebody destroys your fence and then your figs are roaming around, um, you know, somebody does something. All of this is, is seen as offense against the public order, not a rights-based offense. But now that you have federal oversight of rights and you also have this elevation of rights, it gives people a way to kind of recategorize some of those things that were offenses against the public order and they try to turn them into rights. So we have this really creative period during Reconstruction where all kinds of things that didn't used to be rights, people start using rights-based language. And by using rights-based language, you're kind of putting it in within that orbit of stuff that could kind of have federal protection or that gets elevated over other kinds kinds of legal claims. So like education is a great example of this. In Southern states, states of the former Confederacy, education, the right to education is actually written into state constitutions. And that right then sort of gives this more heft, right? It becomes a, a heavier kind of legal claim, a more robust kind of legal claim. But then you see all kinds of other things that used to be offenses against the public order get transitioned into rights claims. So, you know, an employer who is abusing a worker and that worker who is African-American will then say, you're violating my rights. And by violating rights, you're bringing in state and federal apparatus. You know, you could be bringing in state and federal apparatus here. So it is this period where, um, yeah, you get new kinds of rights claims, but you also, it goes in another direction. The past is not always like, you know, it's not all good, it's not all bad, but Here's an instance where, oh, rights become the way of making legal claims, which also means you're going to have to always like make sure that your legal claim is a rights-based claim. And then this, you know, begins to transform the legal system as well and uh, cuts off other avenues and ways of making legal claims. Um, and also is problematic for people who have difficulty claiming rights, which in the end are African-Americans, women. And so as you move into a rights-based system, the people who have difficulty claiming rights have more and more difficulty making legal claims because it's the only way to do it. And the other ways of making claims kind of disappear and don't have the robust quality they once had. And so there's also a real downside to the situation as well. But in that moment of reconstruction, it is really amazing. There is this really creativity about what is right and how we might reimagine this. And people are, you know, um, bringing in ideas from all over the system, all over the society. And it's not just top down with congressmen who are doing this. It is also people on the ground when they're they're making these claims where they're the ones who are really pushing and expanding out the conceptions of what rights are, which I find completely fascinating. They're doing it in ways that actually all the congressmen who are framing this legislation never intended, but actually become embedded in our legal system.
This is really fascinating. And it's so interesting to hear about, right, the the rhetorical innovations about what rights mean in this period of time. Um, I'm sure my uh, fellow colleagues in communication studies and rhetoric can really take uh, uh, take appreciation for how you're describing this period of time. Um, but I think maybe let me ask the flip question, which is um, uh, how, what do people, as, as you're um, researching, what do you think people most commonly misunderstand about the Constitution? So I think we tend to think of it as this top-down creation. Um, and I think this is particularly prevalent right now, that there were these guys in Philadelphia, they got together, they created the Constitution, and then it was their document. But that's really a misreading of how people understood the Constitution at this point. Um, that notion comes from a very presentist idea about law and the legal profession. So Imagine for a second, I'm going to have to go in a sort of, I'm going to take a digression. This is going to seem like a digression, but it's not. So legal education in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, right? There are no big law schools like we have today. Passing the bar is like, not everybody who practices law passes the bar. They're not these legal credentialing, professional credentialing things that you go through. In fact, you kind of read law and then you can practice law. That's, it's very, you know, informal and unprofessionalized. But then think also about the way the legal system works in like the vast majority of kind of the legal system, which is taking place in these local areas. People don't hire lawyers for all their cases. They represent themselves. They know the law because the law is not in books. The law is also about customary practices. It's about expectations of justice. Um, you can bring in all kinds of legal authorities in that period that are not like an appellate case or a treatise or a statute. Those are legal authorities, but they're not the final word. You also have a whole range of other legal authorities. Your mother-in-law, who has definite ideas about how things should go and what her son-in-law should be doing. You have the preacher. You have the Bible. You have novels. You have, you know, customary practice, as in, well, this woman here has always run a textile store in this town, so of course she can get credit and operate on her own because that's what she does. And it doesn't matter that another area of law says that she can't because custom in this place will outweigh that. So in this world, you have lots of legal alternatives. And some of those legal alternatives are based in the knowledge of local people, the knowledge of everyday people in everyday life. So if you open up that world and understand that, how can you have a constitution that dictates to somebody top down? You don't. In fact, that constitution sets up a system that is way more flexible that allowed for all of this kind of interchange and exchange with the presumption, and I think this is where we're very different than in the early 19th century, presumption that people could weigh in on what the law meant. So people weighed in all the time on what the law meant. And there were also options. And you see this even at the federal level where you would think the Constitution would be sort of most dispositive and most definitive and be the ruling document. So, for instance, in Dred Scott, many people, this is the case that 
denied citizenship to all people of African descent, right? Um, and is notorious. And many people cite this today as that decision denied people of African descent citizenship. See? And yet federal judges, the Supreme Court justices who dissented in that opinion, refused to actually uphold that in other federal cases. They would, you know, actually define it more narrowly. It's like, yeah, in that case that worked, but not in these other cases. In Maryland, where Justice Taney practiced, um, he was the person who you know issued the opinion. In Maryland court, directly after that, said, "Nah, no, free blacks are actually citizens and always have been in Maryland." So yeah, um, so the Supreme Court decision was one of many kinds of legal principles out there, and people felt confident enough in a system where we had debate about it, that they didn't just accede to that, that there were other options and there are other legal authorities and bodies of legal authority out there as well. Another example of this, for instance, would be um, statutes, state level statutes. In North Carolina, they have one, they passed a statute that was against um, white people trading with enslaved people. And there is a petition that is written in after that because, you know, a circuit court judge came through in one of these, you know, a county court, which is a step up from a magistrate's court. And this question of somebody who had been, you know, charged with trading with an enslaved person and they petitioned the governor and they said, well, we know you have the statute, but it doesn't apply here, right? Because we have a history and custom of, in fact, trading with enslaved people. So we're not going to apply it. Okay. Um, but again, it's it's not that they're defying the state. It's in a system where a statute is not necessarily definitive and that custom could and did routinely override some of these things. Now, you can have, I mean, I'm not saying this is good. I'm saying that that's the way it worked, right? And you can have serious questions about that. It's like the law then is completely unknowable in some ways. Like you go here, it's one thing. You go there, it's another thing. You go over here, it's another thing. That's a big mess, right? But the mistake would be to assume that the way we do it now is the way they did it then, and then to interpret particular pieces of statutes or decisions in the way that we would interpret them now. And so knowing that, then you can have this question. It's like, well, in fact, you can't point to the past to support exactly what we're doing now, but you could point to the past and say, is what we're doing now good, right? We have that option. We have that question now that we could, you know, actually engage in and debate. Um, and to me, that's what's really important about the past. Um, and it's also what's important about kind of understanding the way that the legal institutions and our constitutional order has developed over time as well. Well, Dr. Edwards, looking forward to continuing this conversation when you're on campus here next week, September 22nd, maybe hearing more debunking myths around the, the Constitution. Looking forward to having you with our students as well as at our lecture at 7 o'clock p.m. on September 22nd in Madison Union Ballroom. We hope many people will be able to join us. We'll, we'll leave Dr. Edwards with one last question. Drawing on your expertise as a legal historian, what do you think most needs to be done today to strengthen our democracy? And I'll let you take that question however you want to. To take it. You know, I think this goes back to your question when you asked me too about civic engagement. And I said, okay, well, I teach in class, but I feel like there's also civic engagement is about, I think we, we kind of sometimes look at it as something that you, it's a special thing that you do. Um, and I think like civic engagement is what you should be, right? I mean, 
this is this is the nature of our our constitutional order. It demands all of us to be engaged, um, and so it's not something that you should like extra that you do. It should be something that you live. It's your responsibility. And I feel very strongly about this. Um, and when people say, oh, I'm not going to vote or I'm not going to do this. or I'm gonna do this, It's like, no, 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 no. You don't get that choice here. It's This is a privilege that we've all been granted to participate. And it's our responsibility to do that, to make sure that this all goes, right? And that means a lot of things. It's not only your responsibility to participate, but to inform yourself and to think critically about the options in front of you. And this is not just about then, you know, I like this person or I like that person, or this is about government. This is about decisions that collectively affect us all. And I feel like one of the things we've lost in some of our, in in recent years is that engagement, right? Um, That the local courts, the, the guy who was, chasing down the person who stole his neighbor's jacket. Um, people were engaged with the sense of like public order and governance. There was an expectation that you would come to court, you would give evidence, you would participate in working through what was going to be best for your community. And I feel like that responsibility has gone, this sort of sense of we're part of a larger public instead of individuals, isolated individuals who can somehow make our way on our own. That's something I feel like we can learn from the past as well. I don't like some of the decisions they made in the past around what was good for the public order. For instance, in the states of the South, they decided what was good for the public order was excluding all people of African descent and enslaving them. We don't need to make that decision. But the idea that we would all be involved in defining public order, having conversations about that, and thinking carefully about how government works for the benefit of us all, would be really nice. And that's one thing I actually, you know, I think you have to just do that by living it. I think you do that by explaining that that's the way the past worked. And that's the only way that this government and this democracy we have can continue to work. And it's just a long process, right? You have to keep doing that. So I really thank you for the opportunity here to say some of that and the opportunity to speak because that is also, I think, part of kind of spreading the word. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Edwards, for joining us and leaving us with a series of incredibly thought-provoking questions uh, about how we should think about the law, how we should think about rights and the Constitution. We really appreciate you sharing your work with us and look forward to your Constitution Day lecture uh, here at JMU on September 22nd. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. This is great fun. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Leah Suravel, Democracy Fellow for Communications in the Madison Center for Civic Engagement. Randy Budnikis, JMU Director of Digital Marketing, provides syndication for the program. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can connect and engage with us online at JMU Civic on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University at jmu.edu civic. We'll see you next time.